Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 1 through 36. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, what would that would that would we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt? We sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they walk in the way and in the walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, at the evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that we you would grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumblings that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And, then, and in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat, and you shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. 
But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and, and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And on the sixth day they gathered, gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord, and today you will not find it in the field. Six days shall you gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my, and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place. And on the seventh day, people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the, and the wet taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to an habitable land. And they ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And an omer is a tenth of a part of an if ifaf. Thus, this is the reading of the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. See where we are um, with what's happening uh, in, in the story of the Bible up to this point, because we're not far, we're in the second book of the Bible. And I think, I think if we have an appreciation for what's happening up to this point, um, we'll, we'll appreciate more what's happening in this moment, in this text. So uh, bear with me for just a moment. In the beginning, God creates the world and everything in it, right? He creates Adam and Eve, tells them to, uh, to increase numerically, to expand geographically, and, and to rule the earth. And that goes well for about a, a chapter and a half, right? And then in Genesis 3, they decide they want to go kind of more of an independent way, and they abandon God's plan for their own independence. Uh, the curse goes into to effect. Man is cursed, woman is cursed, the earth is cursed. Uh, then things kind of go bad after that. In Genesis, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, God's going to, in a, in a sense, hit reset. There's going to be the flood, and he's just going to save Noah and his family. And after the flood, gives a similar type of command, increase numerically, expand geographically, and rule over the earth. So 
that happens for a few, uh, few chapters, and then uh, things go sideways not long after that. And then in Genesis 12, God's going to again kind of start over. So we start with Adam and Eve, then we start over with Noah. And by Genesis 12, we need to start over again. And here's what God's going to do this time. He's not going to send a flood. He's not going to do the curse. He's already done that. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to create, in this, this mess of a world that we have, he's going to create his own people. And he's going to create his own people kind of out of nowhere. And what I mean by that, so, so God's not going to look around and say, you know, here's a people group, here's a family I like, or here's a nation, and I'm going to make them my nation. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to do it the way he created the world. It's going to be out of nothing. And so what he decides to do, he's going to take this old man named Abraham. He and his wife cannot have children, and they're, and they're old. So no children are, are, are coming for them from a human perspective. But God says, hey, I'm going to take you, an, an old married couple that cannot have children, and I'm going to make a nation out of you, which is crazy talk. And so eventually it happens. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name changes to Israel. And then Israel has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then God arranges for this, this family to grow a bit. And then he moves them to, to Egypt by these odd circumstances that I'm sure you're all familiar with. Moves them to Egypt. Uh, and while they're in Egypt, they begin to expand. They begin to multiply as God promised they would. And so they're multiplying and growing in the land of Egypt. And they get to be big enough to where they begin to intimidate the, 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 the leadership in Egypt. And they say, this is a problem. These people are too many. We need to get them under control. So they enslave them. The people of Israel become slaves in Egypt. Um, and so, so what God's going to do is his promise to Abraham is I'm going to make you a nation. Like think about a geopolitical, like a nation has land and it has people. And God's going to make this happen out of nowhere. And he chooses to, to he promises Abraham that he's going to do this. And now he's got a lot of people, but they're not in the right land, right? They're in Egypt and Egypt's not the land that God's given them. That's going to be Canaan, the land that he's going to take them to. And so God has these people, the people of Israel, and these people are not yet what God intends them to be. These are people who are enslaved. They're, they're, they're a bit of a fixer-upper type of people, right? And so what he's going to do is he's going to shape them to be the kind of people that are going to represent him on earth. And so one thing you need to note to understand what's going on here and to understand really the whole Bible is that God did not deliver them because they were good people. He didn't even deliver them out of pity. Other people groups have been oppressed. He delivered them because he had created and chosen them to be his people. He chose a people that would, he would set his love on, and he created them out of nothing. So God didn't save them because they were good and holy. He saved them to become good and holy. And he put them through somewhat of a boot camp to get there. And, and that shouldn't surprise us. We see this kind of happen in, in life. Like there really is a, th a term boot camp. Y'all know what that means. Uh, when, when I was in high school, when I was in 10th grade, uh, our head football coach had a military background. And so the, 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 week, the first week of practice, he took us to Holmes County State Park for a week. And we woke up every morning, 5 o'clock to March. And like when I say March, I mean like the left, right, left, right type, type March. And then on top of that, it's not just early in marching, he filled up these, these big pipes of water, I mean, just like pipes filled with water. And as we're marching left, right, left, he'd say, up, left shoulder, up, right shoulder. <laughs> it was just a beating, right? It was brutal. And look, our coach 
wasn't trying to be a jerk. He, he certainly wasn't trying to make a good time for us. He was trying to shape us, right? He was trying to make us a certain kind of people that were, that, that were, that were kind of tough, right? That could handle hard stuff and push through it. And so he was shaping us. And so this is similar to what God's doing with Israel. He, he's not so much just trying to, to, to make them tough, obviously. He, he's wanting them to be wholly set apart with a deep confidence in him. And so here's what's going on with Israel. Israel is probably somewhere north of a million people while they are in Egypt. And so, so that, that's something similar maybe to the Memphis metro area. And so imagine going to, to Memphis and, uh, and say, hey, I want to get the whole metro population. Everybody come together. And so you get the, the attention of all the Memphis metro area. Hey, everybody, get your things. We're moving to Dallas. All of us by foot. I mean, that's about what was happening here. It was completely insane. And there's a sense where the Red Sea is crazy, but like moving the people of Memphis to, to Dallas by foot, that's, that's kind of equally crazy, right? And, and they get into, a, they get into to trouble pretty quick. And the trouble they run into is food. What are we going to do about food? If you're moving the, the, the population of the Memphis metro area to Dallas by foot, what in the world are you going to do about food? And imagine that whole space in between is just desert and wilderness. So things go bad. After a month and a half, we read that the people begin to complain about food. Look at uh, 16 verse 3. The people said this, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So here they are, a month and a half into this trip. There's no food. And look, it's not like God took them out in the wilderness, forgot about the food. You know, he's not like one of us parents who are on a road trip and get the snacks. You know, what are we going to do? We forgot the snacks. The, the, the food issue was by design. God intended them to be two months deep in the wilderness without food. That's what he was doing. God is doing something here. And we would do well to consider what God is doing in this situation because we might find ourselves in this situation from time to time. I'd say we will for sure find ourselves in a similar situation from time to time. So I want to consider three things that God is doing in this passage. I want to consider first uh, how God is leading, then how God is providing, and then third, how God is instructing. So first, God is leading. So at the moment here, Things aren't great for Israel, but Israel is exactly, exactly where God intended them to be. And if we are struggling, if we find ourselves in a hard season of life, we should not assume that we are not exactly where God intends us to be because God is more focused on how we relate to him than how easy or comfortable our life might be. God often leads his, play, his people into odd places and situations. God led the people of Israel to move to Egypt. And look, you know these people were in Egypt, especially when they got enslaved. And they're like, whose idea was it to move to Egypt? This isn't working out. And I think it'd be fair to say while they're enslaved, bad decision. Don't know who got to make this decision, but this is not working out well. 
Now, you might can say technically it was a bad decision because they're enslaved, but what you must agree with, if you read the scriptures, that was God's design, was for them to be in Egypt and in slavery. So they shouldn't evaluate their being in Egypt. Was this a good decision or bad decision? They should understand it instead. This is what God intended. And his mysterious purposes that we don't get, this is what God intended. God led them to the Red Sea. Bad idea, right? We're going to go to the Red Sea, and then we're going to have the Egyptian army following us. Whose idea was this? God's idea, right? That was, he intended them to be in this difficult spot. And look, and it would have been a bad idea to go to the Red Sea while you're getting, you know, trailed by the Egyptian army, but this is what God intended for them. And you remember Jesus, when he went to the, the, uh, the desert, the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Do you remember how he got there? In Luke 4, we read, the Spirit of God led him to be tempted. It was God's leading him there. And look, we won't always give God a five-star review on wherever he's leading us. I imagine all of us can find ourselves, if you're not there now, you've been at a place where you're just like, this is not where I like to be. Things are not adding up or lining up very well for me right now. And so we wouldn't give a great review at God's leading, but we would if we could see it as he sees it. We would if, he, if we had the eyes to see what he sees. Left to our own vantage point, it often seems like God's doing a bad job, right? I don't want to be in Starkville. I don't want to be in the situation. I don't want to be in whatever it is that's happening we don't like it, but we shouldn't assume just because it's uncomfortable or we don't like it or whatever it might be that it isn't exactly where God intends us to be. So, so God's led the people of Israel two months deep into the wilderness, and they're hungry. They're thinking, we shouldn't have left Egypt. I knew it, had a bad feeling about it, and here we are. And look, food was not a problem in Egypt. It's a problem in the wilderness, was not a problem in Egypt. And so they are evaluating their life based on their food situation. And they're not thinking in terms of God's mysterious ways. They see everything in that moment through the lens of their hunger. And look, I get it. <laughs> like, I, I can relate to this. You're hungry. We were, this, this problem didn't exist before we were. And so what we often do currently we view the, the, the world through the lens of our pain. This is who God is, through the lens of our pain. Whatever hurts, that acute pain you and I feel, that all varies among us, we tend to just view the world and God through that lens. Whatever that pain's coming from, whether it's relational, financial, emotional, health issue, family, work, we tend to view the world through our acute pain. What hurts now and that's the lens through which we look at, at everything else. And Israel is not handling this well. As they're looking through the lens of their hunger, they are not handling this well. And look, you, you know who did handle hunger well? It's kind of a Sunday school answer. Jesus, going back to Luke 4, Satan is tempting Jesus while he's hungry in the wilderness. And it's kind of a reenactment of what, of what happened with Israel. And do you remember what Jesus does when he's being tempted by Satan? Some of you might remember, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. And what's significant about Deuteronomy chapter 8 is that that is about Exodus 16, this situation we just read about. So, so turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I want to look at verse uh, 2 and 3. It's the fifth book in the Bible. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. And y'all, this is what Jesus went to. Jesus being tempted by Satan pulls up Deuteronomy 8. This is what Jesus went to in the time of his temptation. We would do well to study, consider, what did Jesus do when he was tempted? We know exactly, we know the, the text he went to, and that's what we're about to read. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 and 3. It says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that, the, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In verse 3, we read this. He humbled you and let you hunger. Jesus referred to this during his temptation. God led his people to a place where they would be humbled and hungry. God's intention for the people of Israel was for them to be humbled and hungry. Might God do that with people now? Might God do that with you now? Would he humble you and allow you to struggle? How could we say no? He led Jesus to struggle, to be hungry. We have an election coming up this week, right? And, and many are concerned about our country, and rightfully so. But let me throw something crazy out there. What if things go really bad for the next five to 10 years? Let's say they go as bad as people might be predicting. Let's, let's say in particular, let's say for, for Christians, things go as bad as we fear they, they could in the worst case scenario. Let's say we, we lose our religious liberty uh, let's say even that the printing of the Bible becomes illegal because it's considered hate speech, right? So you can't print Bibles. And what if it became socially and economically to your disadvantage to be a Christian, at least a thoughtful, serious Christian? Here's my question. Would that be good or bad for the church? I don't know. I mean, on, on one level, you can say it's bad, right? Because obviously having, losing religious liberty, that's not good. But could there be some good that, came from, that, that would come from that? I think you can make an argument that it could be good for the church to go through a bit of persecution. I think it could be good for the church for it not to be socially and economically to your advantage to be a Christian, it would certainly begin to weed out the cultural Christians that we see, especially in our area of the country. And, and that would be a good thing, right? To get pressed in that way? Now, now, let me be clear. I don't want this to happen, right? First Timothy 2, we should pray for those in authority so that we can live uh, peaceful, quiet, and godly lives. So let me be clear. That's what we should pray for. That's what we should want. I'm just saying that maybe it would be for the good for the church at large, even good for Redeemer Church, if there was a bit of persecution. And as, as far as the, the government uh, being helpful to, the, to, to Christians, remember the first, three the, the first three centuries, the church was under intense persecution, and it spread exponentially. And you know where things stalled out a bit? 
around the time of Constantine, when, when, when the church became in favor with the governing institutions. And so, look, all I'm saying, again, let me be clear, I, I think we should pray for things to go well in our country. We can live peaceful, godly, quiet lives. I'm just saying maybe persecution would be good for us. It was good for Israel to be hungry in the desert. It was good for Jesus to be hungry during his temptation. Maybe persecution would be good for us. And we shouldn't find ourselves too surprised when we find ourselves in bad situations where God humbles us and he lets us hunger a bit. And maybe the only way we will learn that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God is by being humbled and hungry. And look, what does that even mean? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but, er, but, er, but, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does that mean? Is that, that's one of those kind of cliches you can kind of throw out there, and no one knows what it means, and everybody says amen, right? But, but here's the thing. Maybe that's something that can't really be taught. Maybe to understand the meaning of that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, maybe understanding what that means isn't an uh, information transfer to your brain. Maybe that's not how you know what that means. Maybe the only way you can understand what that means is by being humbled and hungry. By having a hunger that is not filled by food, but instead by the word of God. Maybe that would be a good, fla- a good place for us to be. So, so while we might hunger, we can be sure of this, is that God will provide my second point, God's providing. So going back to this idea of trying to move all of Memphis to Dallas by foot, and let's just say there's a desert and wilderness in between the two, what are you going to do about food? I mean, that's hard if you're, if you're by yourself figuring out food, much less a million plus people. So, so Moses and, and Israel, they have a serious problem on their hand. And the people complain as you might imagine, as we would if we would have been there. And they are thinking, what good is it to be miraculously delivered? I mean, the Red Sea parted. Cool. Now we're going to starve to death. You know, this wasn't a a good situation for us to be in. And now we're just going to starve to death in in the desert. But remember, God chose, God created out of nothing and chose a people to be his people. And so he is shaping a people for himself and what he wants of this people, more than them to be full, he wants to, to ha- have a, a culture among the whole nation that they would hope in God. And so he's shaping that into him. He's building that into him. God is building this kind of hope into a million people at once. I mean, you can't get a, a million people to agree on what day of the week it is. And he's going to have them all hoping in God. And look, some of our best moments of faith probably don't just come from us having great faith, right? I mean, if you think about moments where if you, can, if you can remember a time where you're like, I really feel like I did trust the Lord there. I really did hope in God in that moment. I wonder if our best moments of faith, we just didn't have another good option, right? Like we trusted God because there wasn't anything else to trust in. God removed everything else for us to lean on except for him. In those times, he's just training us to set our hope in him. So they are at the end of themselves, wondering a month and a half. They're hungry, and there's no reasonable path towards everyone being fed. And God gives them bread from heaven. Manna is covering the ground. 
And we read in 1635 uh, that God did this until the day they arrived in the promised land, uh, 40 years later. So bread every day for 40 years. Another way to say this is he gave them their daily bread. 40 years in the wilderness. And isn't that what we're supposed to be praying for? Daily bread? God provided a way out of Egypt. He provided a way through the Red Sea. And now he is providing food for a million people every day, 40 years. God is providing. God provides for them what they need, when they need it. And we should assume the same. God will provide what we need when we need it. And one thing to notice, he does not give us next week's grace today. God gives us grace for today. He does not give us grace for the, the, the scenarios that only live in our imaginations. You cannot allow your imagination of the future to make you anxious because God gives daily grace, not grace for tomorrow, today. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do not be anxious. And look, I want to be careful here because I know anxiety can be a, a complicated topic. But it seems to me that we can at least agree that there is a form of anxiety that is sinful and we should repent from. Jesus says clearly, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So there's ways about being anxious about the future that are clearly sinful. There are forms of anxiety that we should reject and repent from the same way we would reject uh, lust or coveting or jealousy. Jesus says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So do not be anxious about what your imagination has cooked up about tomorrow or the future. Instead, hope in God for grace today. He will not give you tomorrow's grace today. He will give you grace for today. The situation you are imagining, you are imagining without God's grace. He does not give graces for the situations he imagined. He only gives grace in real time for what is really happening. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Sufficient are the troubles of today. And he provides grace for today. And if we're going to worry about anything... We should be worrying about following whatever it is he has told us to do. So my third point, I want to talk about God's instructing. So God is faithfully providing for Israel. And while he is doing that, he gives them some instructions. In uh, chapter 16, verse 19 and 20, we see a little bit of it. Uh, 16, 19 says this, Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it, talking about the manna, till morning, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. So Moses tells them, don't store this up. Daily bread coming at you. Don't store it up. What do they do? Store it up. So the bread starts to stink and it breeds worms. God was giving them daily bread. They didn't need to store it up each day. They were just being disobedient. They were working against God's grace, which only hurt them. Now look at uh, chapter 16, verse 25 to 29. Some more instructions. Verse 25, Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Again, they are working against God's grace. These instructions that he's given them are for their good. And look, these commands, sometimes you think of commands, oh, the commands of God are heavy. These are easy. Don't store it up. Get what you need and don't store it up. That was the first one, and they couldn't do that. Then the next one was, hey, everybody, take a day off. <laughs> I mean, the, this is God's grace towards them, and they're working against God's grace. It is in their own self-interest to not uh, to, to, to obey God and to not, to not gather extra because he's going to give them what they need for the day at hand and, and to take a day off. And we need to have an understanding in regards to keeping God's commands as almost the selfish thing to do. And, and there's a sense where you, you will be hesitant to even follow God until you understand that he is a gracious God. And when you are disobeying him, you are working against the grace of God rather than with the grace of God. You're making your life harder than it needs to be. I remember when I was a kid, um, and one of the things I hope to uh, uh, emulate in my own family is, is our home was, was, was often just, just a happy place to, to be. And, uh, but my parents were also disciplinarians. And so when I would begin to act up, things didn't go well for me. Uh, and I remember often hearing, Kevin, your life doesn't have to be this hard. It can be, you're making this hard on yourself when you, when you do this. And we need to understand in the same way with God, when we are working against God's grace, we're making our life harder. We might think we're free. We're working against God's grace. And look, if you're not concerned about knowing and keeping God's commands, then your life is going to be much harder than it needs to be. And life is hard enough already, right? I mean, we live in a fallen world, a sinful world. We have our own sin that we're fighting why would you want to work against God's grace? And when you're not following God, keeping his commands, when you're, when you're living as if you're free, uh, doing your own thing, you're working against God's grace. Why, why would you want to do that to yourself? And look, sometimes we have this idea of, of keeping God's commands as these heavy burdens. I mean, look at what we saw today. <laughs> you don't have to work extra. Take a day off. Jesus said, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And somehow we have this trunked up religious idea that, that, that keeping Jesus' commands is this heavy, burdensome load. It's clear in Scripture. 1 John 5, 3, it's not, the commands are not burdensome. The Psalms are clear. They are a delight. They are sweet. So why would you want to work against God's grace? Why would you do that to yourself? And let me, let me close out by, by um, going to John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus gives um, some, some commentary on this situation. And John 6 uh, is, a, is a story where there's 5,000 people and there's no food again. So here we are again. Lots of folks, no food. That's the problem. Uh, there's five loaves of bread, two fish. That's a joke. No way we can feed all these people with this little food. Um, and this is somewhat of a reenactment of what happened in Exodus chapter 16. And so the, the people track him down the, the, the next day after he feeds them. Uh, and I want to pick up, I want to read John chapter 6, verse 30 to 35. John chapter 6, verse 30 to 35 says this. 
So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate them in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We need to eat to survive. We need bread to live. And Jesus is saying here, there is a type of life. There is a type of living that you cannot have apart from him. He is the bread of that life. And you don't get it and you don't keep it without him. So may God lead us in whatever way necessary to the bread of life, to Jesus Christ, and give us the grace we need for the day at hand. And as we're led to Jesus to find grace, may we be more concerned about our own obedience than about whatever mysteries tomorrow may hold. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the bread of life. And you have been good and kind to us when you have humbled us, led us to uh, be hungry, tested us. And in those things, when you lead us to yourself, you are good and kind. And so would you help us to trust your leading, uh, trust in your provision, and would you help us to keep your commands for our joy and your glory. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.